section eleven of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter five chartism part two the working class in the opinion of many of their ablest and most influential representatives were not merely left out but shouldered out this was all the more exasperating because the excitement and agitation by the strength of which the reform bill was carried in the teeth of so much resistance were kept up by the working men there was besides at the time of the reform bill a very high degree of what may be called the temperature of the french revolution still heating the senses and influencing the judgment even of the aristocratic leaders of the movement what richter calls the seed grains of the revolutionary doctrines had been blown abroad so widely that they rested in some of the highest as well as in most of the lowliest places some of the reform leaders lord durham for instance were prepared to go much farther in the way of radicalism than at a later period mr cobden or mr bright would have gone there was more than once a sort of appeal to the working men of the country which however differently it may have been meant certainly sounded in their ears as if it were an intimation that in the event of the bill being resisted too long it might be necessary to try what the strength of a popular uprising could do many years after in the defence of the irish state prisoners at clonmel the council who pleaded their cause insisted that they had warrant for their conduct in certain proceedings which were in preparation during the reform agitation he talked with undisguised significance of the teacher being in the ministry and the pupils in the dock and quoted captain mckeith to the effect that if laws were made equally for every degree there might even then be rare company at tyburn tree it is not necessary to attach too much importance to assertions of this kind or to accept them as sober contributions to history but they are very instructive as a means of enabling us to understand the feeling of soreness which remained in the minds of large masses of the population when after the passing of the reform bill they found themselves left out in the cold rightly or wrongly they believed that their strength had been kept in reserve or in terrorum to secure the carrying of the reform bill and that when it was carried they were immediately thrown over by those whom they had thus helped to pass it therefore at the time when the young sovereign ascended the throne the working classes in all the large towns were in a state of profound disappointment and discontent almost indeed of disaffection chartism was beginning to succeed to the reform agitation the leaders who had come from the ranks of the aristocracy had been discarded or had withdrawn in some cases they had withdrawn in perfect good faith believing sincerely that they had done the work which they undertook to do and that that was all the country required men drawn more immediately from the working class itself or who had in some way been dropped down by a class higher in the social scale took up the popular leadership now chartism may be said to have sprung definitively into existence in consequence of the formal declarations of the leaders of the liberal party in parliament that they did not intend to push reform any farther at the opening of the first parliament of queen victoria's reign the question was brought to a test 
a radical member of the house of commons moved as an amendment to the address a resolution declaring in favour of the secret ballot and of shorter duration of parliaments only twenty members voted for it and lord john russell declared distinctly against all such attempts to reopen the reform question it was impossible that this declaration should not be received with disappointment and anger by great masses of the people they had been in the full assurance that the reform bill itself was only the means by which greater changes were to be brought about lord john russell said in the house of commons that to push reform any farther then would be a breach of faith toward those who helped him to carry it a great many outside parliament not unnaturally regarded the refusal to go any farther as a breach of faith toward them on the part of the liberal leaders lord john russell was right from his point of view it would have been impossible to carry the reform movement any farther just then in a country like ours where interests are so nicely balanced it must always happen that a forward movement in politics is followed by a certain reaction the parliamentary leaders in parliament were already beginning to feel the influence of this law of our political growth it would have been hopeless to attempt to get the upper and middle classes at such a time to consent to any further changes of considerable importance but the feeling of those who had helped so materially to bring about the reform movement was at least intelligible when they found that its effects were to stop just short of the measures which alone could have made any direct influence on their political position a conference was held almost immediately between a few of the liberal members of parliament who professed radical opinions and some of the leaders of the working men at this conference the programme or what was always afterwards known as the charter was agreed upon and drawn up the name of charter appears to have been given to it for the first time by o'connell there's your charter he said to the working men's association agitate for it and never be content with anything less it is a great thing accomplished in political agitation to have found a telling name a name is almost as important for a new agitation as for a new novel the title of the people's charter would of itself have launched the movement quietly studied now the people's charter does not seem a very formidable document there is little smell of gunpowder about it its points as they were called were six manhood suffrage came first it was then called universal suffrage but it only meant manhood suffrage for the promoters of the movement had not the slightest idea of insisting on the franchise for women the second was annual parliaments vote by secret ballot was the third abolition of the property qualification then and for many years after required for the election of a member to parliament was the fourth the payment of members was the fifth and the division of the country into equal electoral districts the sixth of the famous points of these proposals some it will be seen were perfectly reasonable not one was so absolutely unreasonable as to be outside the range of fair and quiet discussion among practical politicians three of the points half that is to say of the whole number have already been made part of our constitutional system the existing franchise may be virtually regarded as manhood suffrage we have for years been voting by means of a written paper dropped in a ballot-box 
the property qualification for members of parliament could hardly be said to have been abolished such a word seems far too grand and dignified to describe the fate that befell it we should rather say that it was extinguished by its own absurdity and viciousness it never kept out of parliament any person legally disqualified and it was the occasion of incessant tricks and devices which would surely have been counted disreputable and disgraceful to those who engaged in them but that the injustice and folly of the system generated a sort of false public conscience where it was concerned and made people think it is as lawful to cheat it as at one time the most respectable persons in private life thought it allowable to cheat the revenue and wear smuggled lace or drink smuggled brandy the proposal to divide the country into equal electoral districts is one which can hardly yet be regarded as having come to any test but it is almost certain that sooner or later some alteration of our present system in that direction will be adopted of the two other points of the charter the payment of members may be regarded as decidedly objectionable and that for yearly parliaments as embodying a proposition which would make public life an almost insufferable nuisance to those actively concerned in it but neither of these two proposals would be looked upon in our time as outside the range of legitimate political discussion indeed the difficulty any one engaged in their advocacy would find just now would be in getting any considerable body of listeners to take the slightest interest in the argument either for or against them the chartists might be roughly divided into three classes the political chartists the social chartists and the chartists of vague discontent who joined the movement because they were wretched and felt angry the first were the regular political agitators who wanted a wider popular representation the second were chiefly led to the movement by their hatred of the bread tax these two classes were perfectly clear as to what they wanted some of their demands were just and reasonable none of them were without the sphere of rational and peaceful controversy the disciples of mere discontent naturally swerved alternately to the side of those leaders or sections who talked loudest and fiercest against the lawmakers and the constituted authorities chartism soon split itself into two general divisions the moral force and the physical force chartism nothing can be more unjust than to represent the leaders and promoters of the movement as mere factious and self-seeking demagogues some of them were men of great ability and eloquence some were impassioned young poets drawn from the class whom kingsley has described in his alton locke some were men of education many were earnest and devoted fanatics and so far as we can judge all or nearly all were sincere even the man who did the movement most harm and who made himself most odious to all reasonable outsiders the once famous now forgotten fergus o'connor appears to have been sincere and to have personally lost more than he gained by his chartism four or five years after the collapse of what may be called the act of chartist agitation a huge white-headed vacuous-eyed man was to be seen of mornings wandering through the arcades of covent garden market looking at the fruits and flowers occasionally taking up a flower smelling at it and putting it down with a smile of infantile satisfaction a man who might have reminded observers of mr dick in dickens's david copperfield 
and this was the once renowned once dreaded and detested fergus o'connor for some time before his death his reason had wholly deserted him men did not know at first in the house of commons the meaning of the odd pranks which fergus was beginning to play there to the bewilderment of the great assembly at last it was seen that the fallen leader of chartism was a hopeless madman it is hardly to be doubted that insanity had long been growing on him and that some at least of his political follies and extravagances were the result of an increasing disorder of the brain in his day he had been the very model of a certain class of demagogue he was of commanding presence great stature and almost gigantic strength he had education he had mixed in good society he belonged to an old family and indeed boasted his descent from a line of irish kings not without some ground for the claim he had been a man of some fashion at one time and had led a life of wild dissipation in his early years he had a kind of eloquence which told with immense power on a mass of half-ignorant hearers and indeed men who had no manner of liking for him or sympathy with his doctrines have declared that he was the most effective mob orator they had ever heard he was ready if needs were to fight his way single-handed through a whole mass of tory opponents at a contested election thomas cooper the venerable poet of chartism has given an amusing description in his autobiography of fergus o'connor who was then his hero leaping from a wagon at a nottingham election into the midst of a crowd of tory butchers and with only two stout chartist followers fighting his way through all opposition flooring the butchers like ninepins once says mr cooper the tory lambs fought off all who surrounded him and got him down and my heart quaked for i thought they would kill him but in a very few moments his red head emerged again from the rough human billows and he was fighting his way as before there were many men in the movement of a nobler moral nature than poor huge wild fergus o'connor there were men like thomas cooper himself devoted impassioned full of poetic aspiration and no scant measure of poetic inspiration as well henry vincent was a man of unimpeachable character and of some ability an effective popular speaker who has since maintained in a very unpretending way a considerable reputation ernest jones was as sincere and self-sacrificing a man as ever joined a sinking cause he had proved his sincerity more indeed than word his talents only fell short of that height which might claim to be regarded as genius his education was that of a scholar and a gentleman many men of education and ability were drawn into sympathy if not into actual cooperation with the chartists by a conviction that some of their claims were well founded and that the grievances of the working classes which were terrible to contemplate were such as a parliament better representing all classes would be able to remedy some of these men have since made for themselves an honourable name in parliament and out of it some of them have risen to high political position it is necessary to read such a book as thomas cooper's autobiography to understand how genuine was the poetic and political enthusiasm which was at the heart of the chartist movement and how bitter was the suffering which drove into its ranks so many thousands of stout working men 
who in a country like england might well have expected to be able to live by the hard work they were only too willing to do one must read the anti-corn law rhymes of ebenezer elliot to understand how the bread tax became identified in the minds of the very best of the working class and identified justly with the system of political and economic legislation which was undoubtedly kept up although not of conscious purpose for the benefit of a class in the minds of too many the british constitution meant hard work and half starvation end of section eleven